welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to the Sunday Science Q&A. How many weeks have been doing this? This must be 12th, 13th, 14th show uh, that we've done. As usual, uh, we will follow, in fact, I think not from if we've had other events on a Sunday, you can still catch up, in fact, with the Sea Shambles we did, which was our replacement version of the show we would have been doing at the Albert Hall. That's still online. And also our Cheltenham Science Festival show is also uh, still online with many different people on that. And uh, today we're going to be, well, we're dealing with natural selection, evolution, mutation, heredity, the uh, size of human tongues, possibly, if we get to uh, Ted's question, age nine. And uh, we've got, uh, or indeed, we've got something very interesting about fish from Sebastian, age five as well. Um, and we also have questions from people age 45 and 59 as well. It's reasonably broad. Some of them don't have ages. They might be 79 or 84. We're not sure. Let me tell you a few things. Uh, we have three fantastic guests today. Uh, we have Matthew Cobb, who's been on before. Helen Chersky is on every single week. And I'm very, very pleased that we have uh, someone who's doing incredible work uh, based at the Natural History Museum as well, who is Angelica Swami. And uh, we also, I'll tell you a few things coming up. Uh, one, the European Space Agency show that uh, Helen did is, uh, we've reached episode five, I think this week is going to be up. And uh, that includes uh, Tim Peake is going to be appearing in that not just in the background i think he talks and everything as well and uh we also have josie's show tonight josie long show tender uh will be live streamed at 8 30 uh alice roberts is our most recent show and tell we went through a lot of interesting different versions of human skulls with her all just things she was just rifling around in a drawer and as she did that she found various different human skulls some she'd even forgotten that she had and you know sometimes when you meet an anatomist and you think they're almost overly keen you see the way they're sizing you up and this you see the way that they're thinking one day maybe i'll be looking at their pancreas as well as i cut them open and uh, also i mentioned we have the beginning of our genetic shambles that's going to be starting next week as well uh, we've done a series of shows and in fact we're still recording a series of shows which are looking at many different kind of angles and understandings of genetics as well as looking specifically um about how the current technology that we have uh is dealing with covid19 and understanding uh its structure and how we are going to deal with that so that's a few things coming up don't forget we uh, you can join us on patreon if you join patreon that keeps us being able to make the five or six shows that we're making a week uh, or if you can't be bothered with that there's a tip jar as well so um hopefully you might pop something in that today and also uh if you're not you know if you don't want to do any of those things 
it's absolutely fine it's all free as well so uh you can do whatever you wish your altruism is merely a judgment of how far you've evolved no pressure um so let's start off with helen uh hello helen you have uh, i'm gonna do no preamble they know about the books you've written they know about all of your work they know about the fact you are something of a polymath when it comes to uh, uh wonderful uh, spread eagle nature of your scientific understanding of the world what is today's show and tell uh so uh so i i have these two things here now they look like blue tack and in what i'm about to tell you next it's very important you remember they're not blue tack so these were uh created by an audiologist someone who studies human hearing and what they are is actually the wrong way around um they were made by taking special audiologists paste and they put it they filled up my ear so all of the bits all of the kind of wrinkly bits you see around someone's ear this is a mold of that and they now you do do not do this at home it's very special you need a proper you need certificates and everything to make these so they left what they did is they left the bit where the actual hole where the sound goes in and then all the rest of these let me get them right so all the rest of those that's a mold of my two ears my outer ear now the first thing is that you see they don't match which was an astonishing surprise to me i just assumed i was symmetrical but apparently i'm not can we just see the originals again just to see how <laughs> obvious it is to, to uh, us if we see the the original ear this is this ear i'm not oh, no no don't put that just just show us the ear let's see if we see that that right okay and then show us the other ear this is like this is like someone expecting I've washed my ears this morning. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, if... yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. The uh, it, oh, we can't see it. Your hair's right? hanging over it. Let's and give us the other one again. I think yeah. Yes. Now we know. It's, that's interesting. That's interesting because you would never one. You don't normally talk to people. You know, in in, in the ear. So Richard Dawkins, I think, prefers that than to looking people in the eyes. But that's not the point. The uh, so so anyway. Then. So then what happens then. next? So then so, what happens next? So so then you, you get little. They set solid. You get little molds. Uh, and the sound can still get in, but it can't interact with any of this, the outer bit of your ear. Now, then what they did to me is they tried to clap it. They, they put those back in my ears. So they basically blocked out all the wrinkles of my ears. They blindfolded me and then they clapped at different heights, low, you know, high, low and in the middle. And I could not tell what height they were clapping at. And they were right in front of me and I couldn't tell the height of the clap, which is really disconcerting. And the reason for that is that, you know, that's actually quite an interesting thing. Like your ears are at the same height. Why would you be able to hear the height that a clap's coming from? And the reason you can do it is to do with all of these wrinkles, all these shapes in their ears, in that the sound, um, the direction it's coming from will sort of bounce off all the folds and wrinkles differently in each ear, but also your ear is unique. So there's a shape that your brain has got used to. And if sound comes from like one direction onto the top of it, it'll bounce around the wrinkles in one way before it goes down your ear. And if it comes from the bottom, it will bounce off in a different way before it goes down your ear. So effectively, the direction the sound comes from leaves a fingerprint on the sound itself. And that is how you tell the height when you hear a sound, that's how you know whether it's low, high, or in the middle. Now, it's do not get any blue tack and try this yourself at home. I do really don't want a load of audiologists on the phone saying, I've got all these kids with blue tack down their ears, right? It needs to be done properly. But it's really like just that the idea that, um, I mean, we sort of assume that, you know, if you do this, you do it because it, you hear a bit better because you've got a sound collection device effectively. But actually, the shape of your ear is there for a reason. It's not random and it is helping you 
tell the direction that sound is coming from. So yeah, so I keep, I keep these on my in my bookshelf. It's a bit. I mean, it's a bit odd, I suppose. What what's that? Oh, it's a mold of my outer ear. Um, but it's just a nice reminder. Like I would never have known that. I didn't go looking at my ears. So that's that's a lovely help. thing that you've been watching you do this for the last fourteen weeks. That today was the day it was going to be a revelation that some of the things in your collection were a bit odd. Yeah. I think they've they've got used to that some time ago. But the, I'm genuinely I'm also that that's fascinating on 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 both the levels you dealt with there. The, the idea that I mean I I know that whenever we see different ways where we see ourselves or we see other people as symmetrical, and when you do actually see the separation too. But the ear thing d- surprised me quite a lot because those molds look very different. You know, in a way that you do, and and that, for some reason, I would expect that the coding, etc., would basically say we're going to reproduce roughly the same on either side, or yeah. more than roughly the same. So it's random. So obviously, they're about the size. Not like people don't have different sizes of wrinkles, right? They there's there's some there's some features, there's some there's some features which are very similar. But the other thing which uh, they told me, and I can't remember that the the context in which they. Uh, tried this but anyway an audiologist definitely told me this was that if you give someone different shaped wrinkles i'm not entirely sure what that has to happen for you to do that um you do adapt after a while so you go around confused in the world because all your brain's misinterpreting the 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 sound from the different wrinkles but after a while it's like those glasses that kind of send your sight off to one side or up or down or something Mm -hmm. that you adapt very quickly and so your brain gets used to it but but there's just a really good example of how much processing your brain is doing that we're not aware of and it, and it's using every tiny little clue it gets from anywhere in order to make sense of the world that's brilliant thank you so much uh, and uh, now matthew we talked about your book last time but you are uh it's been been since the last since time, last time you had on, another you've... sensational review uh and it seems that for, for a book that it does seem at times when i spoke to you during the process of creating it you nearly broke your brain writing about the human brain um you must be very pleased with the fact that many people, very yeah, highly respected people, uh, are saying that you have beautifully summarised that the the previous understandings of how the brain, the current understanding, and the future of what we may be able to understand. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's been it's been enormously gratifying. Uh, the review's been fantastic, apart from one bloke on uh, Amazon who said I wasn't. Um, what's his name? Bill, Bru- no, Bill, what's his face? Bill, 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 yeah, Bill Wyman. You're not Bill Wyman. No, that's right. No, I know. And, yeah. um, to be honest, you're not Bill who... Wyman. I've heard your jazz. It's terrible, ter- ter- terrible jazz and blues. And uh, somebody else who complained that I uh, I didn't explain how the brain worked, which is kind of the point of the book. But uh, in, in the reviews have been great. The reviews have been great. Um, but I quite understand that uh, reading a hard book, <laughs> a hard long book, is a bit difficult at the moment. So I've got another book. Smell, a very short introduction. That's easy. That's, that is very short. That's what it says on the tin. So if you wonder about smell, it doesn't mention COVID-19, unfortunately. I couldn't get that in in time. But something about smell there. Another oh, book. has that just come out? Is that a new Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's just disappeared into the ether with, you know. I hope it is a scratch and sniff, because I still have my scratch and sniff from John Waters' uh, uh, Odorama film, Polyester. No, but that's in here. Right, good. There's a good. great There's chapter on smelling culture, polyester, divine, the lot. Tab Hunter, wonderful. Uh, smell what of is... bars, smell of space, that's all in here. Well, yeah, and, well, that yeah, is... and that is a book that it's safe.
through in bed, whereas it's not safe to read because of the weight of the book. <laughs> but it is, I, I would say to anyone who's who's worried when they, you know, the, the Bill Bryce thing, whatever, it's it's not in any way impenetrable. It's not in any way a, a, a book of what I would say is uh, it, written for specialists. It, it, it is a book filled with with stories, and I think which is also uh, which is very comprehensible for people like me who are not, you know, scientific. So, um, and, and it is, yes, no, we did a book shambles about it, by the way. There's a full interview with, with Matthew, if you want to hear that at any point, talking more about the book and what it involves. Um, so what's your show and tell today? Well, I've got two. And uh, the first, is, first this. is this. I don't know if you can see it. And these are, can you see that? These are maggots. These are fossil maggots from the Eocene. Uh, about 50 million years ago, and these are botfly maggots, so these would have been, it's not quite clear what they would have been in, but they would have been wriggling around underneath the skin or even in the nostrils of some, probably a large mammal, and then fell out into the water of what is now the Green River and were then fossilised. So 50 million year old fossilised maggots, that was a present uh, to me from my youngest daughter who knows what i like and then hang on how did you fossilize a maggot because i thought the whole point was that we didn't know much about soft-bodied things things because you they didn't fossilize very easily a fossilized maggot super rare or has everyone just not been telling us no there's loads and zillions of them there you can pick them i mean without wishing to spoil my birthday present uh you can pick them up for about this is about 15 quid so if you go on eBay, you can get a little chunk of them for there's absolutely loads of these things. It depends on the uh, the exact conditions. That's the, the key thing. Whether So in general, you don't get soft bodied tissue um, preserved. But if you get the right anaerobic conditions and it happens very quickly, then, yeah, you end up with a, a lovely image. That's what that's what the Burgess Shale fossils from 55. 540 million years ago was so important because they showed everything about the organisms not just the the the, the kind of vague outline so if you're lucky with the soft-bodied uh, fossil you can get some really fantastic images my net my other one is quite the opposite of soft-bodied so this is the jaw of a mosasaur and so this is this is a large marine reptile um and this is from about 68 million years ago so this is just before the disappearance of all the non-avian dinosaurs. And what I love about this is that these are teeth, right? And that is the enamel. That's not a fossil. That wow. is actual enamel. So I am actually touching what was in a mosasaur's gob 66 million years ago. I find that absolutely extraordinary. I'm worried because, as I, I know the guests from the Natural History Museum in London, if uh, she's on the phone now going, I think we found out who did the break-in. Yeah, 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 <laughs> he's got all the stuff. He's got all of it. Well, this, that is, this is such 25 an quid. Thing. This is 25 quid from a, a, a fossil, shop, fossil in, shop in Castleton in Derbyshire. So, it's, it's, I mean, it's, you've, you've, only got a, you know, you've only got a bit of the jaw because the rest of the fossils decayed. But, yeah, teeth. But that you can get a mosasaur teeth for a tenner. Too. That thing of you, the connection, we've talked about this before, but that moment of touching, you, touching. you know, the, the distance, are, that seems to be there's something that is intangible about the sensation when you yeah. first do that and maybe still do that. There's, you know, oh, we yeah. talked before and this is when you go to a stone circle and you and you and you maybe touch one of the stones. There is something to me that's very fascinating that even the you know however scientifically minded you are within the process of understanding something sometimes you require an intangible sensation of of of, of delight and peculiarity as well 
Yeah, it gives you a, a completely different aspect to it. Same with gastroliths, which are those stones that many herbivorous dinosaurs would put in their in their stomachs, yeah. stomachs, and then they get all lovely and shiny. And they've got some at the Natural History Museum, so when it reopens, we can go and you can, they're allowed. You're allowed to touch them, and they're so shiny because they've been worn by being rattling around against each other and the the acid from inside the dinosaur's stomach. And again, it's that it just brings you, you know, over all the millennia. There you are. You're touching something that was inside another animal. Quite extraordinary. I mean, fossils are amazing, but enamel, that's, that's, um, wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. The, uh, now we go to our next guest. Now, Angela, this is, as I was saying already, the natural, and I want to start off by talking about the fact that I, I, I would say that a lot of people, when they think about people working in museums, they don't realize that they may well be scientifically um, active as well that they may well think that it that a museum is about collecting old stuff it might be about categorizing the old stuff but they don't necessarily realize that you know and you are you've, you've got a lab there haven't you you are very much scientifically uh active in in research aren't you in in research aren't you yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm a research leader at the museum and in the life sciences department, and there's hundreds of scientists that work at the museum. So we work on the collections. We also build the collections by going out and finding new, um, you know, whether there's fossils or whether they're living organisms and, you know, trying to grow our knowledge about all the life that's lived on this planet or all the different, you know, it's not just um, organisms. There's also people that work on rocks and um, other, um, other things that form on, on the earth and even, you know, things from planetary, from other planets and from space. And so it is very much a very active research institution with people looking um, all over, you know, the earth and space to try and understand the natural world. Well, you've but got, I mean, sorry. I know you go on. Yeah. No, I just, when I was, and it's just, you know, one of my favorite things is going into those rooms where you're allowed to open the drawers and you see all those other things. And you're basically doing, I mean, the incredible, huge variety of, 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 of scans of, 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 of samples and of skulls and of, of anatomical structure, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my group, we kind of work on almost everything. So I started off as a mammal as a mammal person, you know, when I did my PhD or when I was an undergrad, I originally started working on whales and then kind of moved across all mammals. And then over the years have just gone broader and broader and broader. So in my lab, you know, right now we're working on we have projects and grants and everything from fishes to dinosaurs to mammals. Um, you know, we had stuff come out this week on salamanders. Um, but, and we also are, um, have been slowly picking away at um, starting a new project looking at insects and other arthropods. So trying to move into, you know, what's really the vast majority of diversity on the planet. Um, so, yeah, we work all over the place because really once you start getting interested in questions about the natural world and about biology, you know, a lot of the questions might be specific to an organism. But actually, a lot of it is just you know, why does it all look the way it does? And so, you know, the, the questions kind of apply to everything. And so there's kind of no stopping point once you start down that road, um, you know, in terms of what's interesting and what's not. Everything is interesting. And the great thing about being at the NHM, because we have, you know, one of the largest collections in the world, right? We have something like 80 million specimens, which is just an insane number of specimens, you know. And one of the reasons I, I moved my lab there a few years ago, actually, was because I just felt like there's so many questions and so many different organisms that I'm interested in. I really need to be at a place where you can just open these drawers and say, 
you know, I've been thinking about bees a lot lately. Let me go look at, you know, a million bee specimens and, and, and you know, start scanning specimens and collecting data and start getting at these questions from, you know, an entirely different group. Same questions, different group could give you completely different answers. And so that's what's really great about, you know, being a scientist at a place like that as opposed to, um, you know, at a university or, or another institution. Do you have a favourite? One of my favourite things is when you find the botched things. Like I was at a naturalist museum in Cambridge, and they were showing me all the eggs that Darwin had sent back, which he he packed far too tightly, and they were broken. And so they were saying he was rubbish at packing stuff. And then you go to Trinity in in Dublin, and they go, unfortunately, someone lost the giraffe's head in transit. You know, there's there's always these kind of beautiful things that will never make it centre stage because something went slightly awry. Oh. Also, a favorite botch story. A favorite botch story. Let's see. I mean, to be honest, I think they still they still hurt a little bit too much, right? Where you think, you know, I remember um, one of my main field sites is in India, and I've been working there for about oh, sixteen years or so now. And right around the time that I was that I started working there, um, so this wasn't my botching, but one of my um, one of my colleagues had sent a new mammal tooth. That so the, these are mammals. What we work on there is just before the dinosaur extinction. So looking at the very, very end of the Cretaceous. And it's really interesting because India was an island at this time. It was probably a thousand kilometers away from Asia, Africa. It had broken off from Madagascar 20 million years before that. It was a complete island. And so what's going on, and also it had these huge volcanics erupting at the time. So it's a really weird um, sort of scenario. And, um, and you get really interesting fossils there. So we get some of the earliest members of, um, well, the earliest things that look close to our kind of mammals, close to placental mammals. And people for a long time thought that maybe placental mammals evolved in India on this island, you know, a little Eden. And then when it crashed into Asia, they spread across the entire world. And so that's why we started working there. And they found, they had found a mammal tooth and they thought it might actually be something kind of definitively part of either, you know, marsupials or placentals. And at the time they had suggested it could have been a, a marsupial, which would have been crazy because there's nothing like that there um and they said they took it to get ct to get sorry um to get scm photographs taken of it or images taken of it at this other lab and lost it it's gone like they they put it in the in the machine and then it was just it was gone and i i have actually lost something in one of those machines before too fortunately it was after i'd taken the images so i could tell that it wasn't actually that interesting although at the time i thought it was a new species but that is one of those things where, who knows what that could have been? That could have been some amazing new discovery about you know mammal evolution in India, and we just have to hope that it was actually not that interesting. Um, yes, I, I love this thing. Is the uh, the robot head of Philip K. Dick? I don't know if you know that. There's a whole book about the, the how they were making a kind of a, a robot version, an animatronic version of Philip K. Dick, and it was kind of a search into AI as well. And the guy left the head of Philip K. Dick on the plane. <laughs> and no one knows where it's gone. And the, in the book, they go, they go on a journey to every lost property place going, have you seen the mechanical head? And it seems so perfect because it's Philip K. Dick as well. Um, what's your show and tell today, by the way? Ah, okay. So I'm, a, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed. That I didn't think to embarrass that. I didn't think to, to bring fossils. Actually, I do have fossils scattered around the house. And, you know, I'm a paleontologist. But um, actually, I brought my, my scanner. 
Um, so this is my handheld uh, white light scanner, which we have used over the past several years to travel around the world when we used to be able to do that um, and build up a really enormous collection of 3D scans. So we use, we have about, um, for the projects in my lab right now, we have about 24, maybe actually more than that, maybe about 25, 20, 2700 scans, I think right now of um, skulls of everything from, you know, fishes to amphibians to, you know, fossils that are 300 million years old, um, you know, to modern species. And so we, we've been using these scans to try and understand how the skull evolves. Um, and so this, this little device here has been the workhorse of my lab. And we take it all over. We've probably taken it to about 50 different institutions over the last five years to build up this data set. Um, and so it's great, too, because right now, for the last several months, obviously, we've been completely cut off from our collections. Um, but fortunately, we, because of this, because of this device, we have a huge library of, of scans. So we've been actually able to continue with our research relatively undisturbed and actually just move all this stuff home and work digitally on specimens um, because we are very much people that work directly on collections or on specimens. So this allows us to actually still do natural history from our bedrooms. That's fantastic. When we had Lucy Rogers on, and we were talking about three D printing and how that can be just 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 the information that is 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 stored, how how helpful that can be for museums and research institutions. Right, it's time to get to uh, the questions for today. Uh, th let's start off with a nice simple one. It's it's pretty much just defining life, I suppose. So all of you will be able to do that. That never takes long, does it? Don't worry. We did an infinite monkey cage the other day on uh, defining what time means. So that was a one question, forty minute show. Um, Dale would like to know. Why have we moved away from primordial soup being a viable idea for the beginning of life? Now, I'm going to start with you, Matthew, on this. Well, well um, we haven't really moved away from it. It's just that the soup hasn't got alphabet in it or minestrone. It's got some kind of uh, replicating molecule in it. It's more a matter of where we think it, it was. Uh, so Darwin thought that life began in what he called a warm little pond. Uh, I think most people think that's pretty unlikely uh, because at the time when life was evolving, there was uh, very high levels of UV light because the sun was very strong and very young. And most of what we think, the molecules we think would have been involved in replicating the nucleic acids, get fried by UV light. So warm little pond, probably not. Lower down, most people think that it's some, you've got to have energy. It's part of the problem about life. You need to get energy from somewhere. And we didn't initially get energy from the sun. Uh, so life initially would probably have got chemical, electrochemical energy and use that to drive its processes, probably from one of these deep sea vents where you get a mixture of uh, waters of different salinity and then you end up with uh, the potential of uh, protons flowing across and providing you with an energy source but down there in that tiny little bubble in a in a rock then you've got kind of a yeah you've got a primeval soup but it's it's not much of a soup it's the other thing you've got to remember is quite how small molecules are i mean they are absolutely minuscule so you've got to bring them close together and therefore you, you when life began it would have been in a very small contained area or the molecules would never have met met each other to copy to reproduce and so on so you need something very very tight and very small for life to begin in Andrew, I'm, I'm interested in knowing that in terms of looking at that technology and we're talking about mammals uh, initially and then fish 
is there what are we seeing in terms of new technologies for trying to be able to because obviously earlier life is harder and harder to detect any uh remnant of so how are we seeing new technologies which are helping us go further back in terms of our detection back in terms of our detection Oh, absolutely. And um, for one thing, just being able to pick up chemical signatures from from rocks that are bearing fossils has um, really, really grown in the last you know decade or so with with new kinds of imaging technology, um, new kinds of mass spectrometry, and things like that. So that's really allowed people to extract a lot more information out of fossil rocks or rocks that you don't know that there are fossils in, but are maybe the right kind of rocks at the right time. You know, structures that maybe before we weren't sure if they're just kind of sedimentary structures formed from, you know, minerals or just, you know, kind of rock structures, but maybe look like they could have been fossils. You can now actually do a lot more in terms of analyzing the chemical structures of them to see if they have the signatures of, of life. Um, but the other thing that's really changed is the imaging technology. So the scanner, this is, you know, very much, um, you know, a surface scanner, something that we can carry around for relatively big things, right? But actually, if you look at some of the new things that are available in terms of CT scanning or X-ray based imaging, like the synchrotron facilities, like the diamond light source, you know, these things that can really image down to micron level scales um, or even submicron level scales um, and really look at, you know, individual cells, um, essentially, for, for organisms for really in some cases, they're really getting back to some of the earliest organisms that may have lived and actually able to image them in 3D now using these new technologies. So all that has been, I think, really a game changer in trying to understand what the earliest life on this planet looked like and getting around some of those problems that, um, that Helen asked about earlier in terms of soft body preservation. You know, because a lot of what we kind of think about in terms of when life exploded on this planet is very much about when the hard parts of life evolved, the hard organisms with, with easily fossilizable hard parts. But of course, things with soft parts evolved much, much, much earlier than that. And so this new technology allows us to actually start to get at that um, in different fossil localities without requiring you know, those hard parts. Brilliant. Thank you. The uh, one you, Helen. This is from James. James would like to know, and I've not quite comprehended this question, which is probably my own stupidity. Could you slice a molecule and put each slice end to end to circumnavigate the world? Um, I so, I, so slicing a molecule. Slicing is a molecule. What chemical reactions? What chemical reactions? In the molecules are made up molecules are made up of atoms positioned next to each other and kept in that position by um, electromagnetic or, you know, electronic bonds. Um, so if you slice, so, so chemical reactions quite often consist of, you know, cutting them open, effectively break, breaking a chemical bond to make two halves. I'm not sure how that takes, it is, it's probably true, I don't have a number for it, but it's probably true that if you took something like a pea and, you know, it's got sort of carbohydrates, which are long molecules in it, you probably could if you could somehow line up all those long carbohydrates end to end, it'd probably go quite a long way, but I haven't, I don't know how far. I'm not sure if that answers the question or not, but it is true that molecules being, as Matthew said, very, very, very small. Um, if you did line a lot of them up, they quite a long distance. stretch quite a long distance, but, well, but well, I don't know how far. <laughs> keep going with your research. Uh, it, well, James, I, it does seem at the forefront of, uh, of our understanding. Yes. I, I, I reckon you could probably, you could do, probably that do that if you got the DNA out of every cell in your body. So if you got the DNA out of every cell in your body, well, you'd be dead. But
but you each amount of DNA in each cell is like a couple of meters. Is it something like that in each cell? So if you stretch that round the world, if you stuck it all together, all those copies of you, how many trillion cells you've got, I bet that would go around the world easy, probably to the moon and back. Okay, so there we go. That's the James to the moon and back. Uh, it's good doing a science Q and A, isn't it? This is uh, right. Let's find it. Uh, this is let's uh, ah now I will. Uh, this is from John Angeli, and he would like to. We know that an asteroid ki asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Is there thought that another global type event that wiped out all megafauna like mammoths and diprodons, or did they all just happen to die at around the same time? So there's quite a lot of information in that. So, so in terms of catastrophic extinctions. Yeah, um, so, um, so this is, you know, obviously a really big topic of research. You know, there's been kind of five mass extinctions in the past, and we, we all try to find what is it that drove these things. So, you know, the, the asteroid impact at the uh, end Cretaceous mass extinction, um, I think we can pretty definitively at this point say that that is what caused that event. Although there are still some people that think it was also tied to these big volcanoes going off in India that, as I mentioned earlier, I think that actually was not the case. And there's some very, very new research coming out um, tomorrow, I think, actually, that talks about that more. So keep an eye out. But if you look at some of the other mass extinctions, they are kind of tied to these huge volcanic eruptions. In fact, the, the biggest mass extinction of all time, the end Permian, where something like you know, 95% of, of species went extinct, you know, actually way worse than the dinosaur extinction. That seems to be caused by huge volcanic explosions or eruptions in, um, in Siberia. Um, one that happened in between those two events also seems to be tied to volcanoes. And so we tend to try and look at these sorts of, you know, big catastrophic environmental shifts as causing mass extinctions, whether it's volcanic eruptions or asteroid impacts. The one um, that, was it James, or John, sorry, that was asked about is, um, he's talking about the most recent megafaunal extinctions. So these are roughly ending about 10,000 years ago, but actually stretching back, say, 50, 60,000 years ago. When you're looking at kind of big things like mammoths and mastodons and um, saber-toothed cats and American lions and diprotodon, which is one of these, it's actually a, kind of a wombat relative this giant that lived in um, Australia. You see giant ground sloths going extinct in South America and Central America and parts of North America. So you see all these really big things going extinct. And there's kind of two prevailing hypotheses for what drove this. One is that we are kind of coming out of this um, really like very volatile glacial interglacial cycle and that those kind of frequent shifts in climate um, create a lot of instability and, and maybe one of those is what you know kind of caused the extinction and so there's a huge camp of people that think it was all about climate change there is obviously another um, camp of people um, who think it was all about humans and in fact there it is true that the extinction for a lot of those megafauna well, megafauna you know essentially largely mammals there are some big birds too um, and other things does seem to correlate with when humans arrive in different places. Um, so if you look at Australia, the megafaunal extinction starts much earlier in Australia around the time that um, that Aborigines went there. When you go to North America, South America, these things are more in the 10 to 20,000 year range when when people moved over there. You don't really see them as much in, in Africa, um, potentially because there was kind of co-evolution over a longer period. Um, and so this is actually a very much a very contentious issue. I don't personally have a, have a dog in the race on this one. Um, 
if I had to say, um, if I had to say my personal opinion based on not being a specialist in this field, I find it hard to believe that you have this really nice correlation of humans showing up at a place and then climate change wiping everything out over and over on every continent. I mean, you even have giant ground sloths in some of the Caribbean islands until about 5,000 years ago. Um, you know, so that doesn't really necessarily match. I mean, it could be a mix of things. It could be both climate and humans. Um, you know, it could be that one thing is stressing the system and you bring in this other big competitor. Um, but I think it's not, you know, it's not an asteroid and it's not volcanics. It could have some kind of climate related issues because we were going, we, you know, kind of are in this very volatile um, period in the Pleistocene in terms of glacial, interglacial shifts. But there were many of them that went on before this big extinction of, of large body of things. And so to me, it seems unusual that they would have made it through so many and then all of a sudden gone extinct. But I'm sure I will make many people very angry by suggesting that it is humans, including some of my colleagues at the Natural History Museum, um, who I think are maybe more on the on the climate side. So let's say it's, it's probably a, a mixture of those two things. Which one was actually the most important is is still um, still a, a, a very serious debate. Brilliant. Thank uh, you. Helen, this uh, for you. This is from uh, Jaundice is the name this person has taken. And they would like to know, do uh, the ocean's planets still contain water from the era of the dinosaurs and beyond? If not, why not? So water. So things on Earth. So things on Earth are recycled, right? That's the way it goes. Energy flows through Earth. Stuff goes round and round. And water is water in the oceans. Um, is quite a large proportion of all the free water on Earth. So there's a little bit of fresh water, tiny bit by comparison. Most of the water is in the oceans. Now, the caveat is that there are there is sort of water locked up in geology, but most of it's in the oceans. Uh, and the water cycle keeps it going around. So it evaporates, it, you know, clouds me over land, it rains, it runs down the river, it runs back into the ocean. So it is almost certainly true uh, that there are plenty of molecules in the ocean that have been there since the time of the dinosaurs. There are an awful lot of molecules in the ocean, like lots and lots and lots. And um, so uh, there's no question that they'll still be hanging around, basically. We can't tell which ones they are because, uh, well, we're not homeopaths. So we, we don't, we th one water molecule just looks like another water molecule. And actually water molecules themselves are kind of breaking apart and joining together all the time. So one of the things that people don't really appreciate, I think, about water is that, you know, we've got this little Mickey Mouse picture where you've got the, the big oxygen in the middle and these two little hydrogens that sort of paired on either side. But actually in water, it's all, it's a bit looser than that. Molecules are kind of moving close to each other and um, forming loose bonds and moving away. And there are dissociated hydrogen ions and hydroxide ions, which is the other half. And they sort of, they're very, um, I'm, I, was, I'm t I wanted to say the word licentious, but it's not that. <laughs> Yeah, they are. Yeah, promiscuous is exactly what they are. So, so there might well be molecules around, but they might not be formed in exactly the same way. If you're being a pedant, um, and I, I quite frequently am a pedant. <laughs> so yes, so yes, the water molecules are there, but they might have changed partners a few times. <laughs> That's a great, great image. The uh, this one, I'm going to start with you on this one, Matthew. This is from Ted, who's age nine. I slightly trailed this question before. Uh, Ted would like to know why human tongues so much bigger than our mouths. And uh, Ted's mum is a biology teacher, and apparently Ted refuses to believe whatever her answer has been. Can I just also add that Ted's mum was one. Of, Ted's mum was one of my best friends at uh, secondary school. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, right, cool. Why did you pick this question to ask? No fix. question, Matthew. <laughs> it's a fix. 
Well, uh, Ted's question is, why is your tongue bigger than your mouth? I mean, it's not, it's not, is it? I mean, I know you can stick it out, but it actually fits in there most of the time. Uh, so it's extensible. It's not as extensible as a, as a chameleon's, which should zoom out and, you know, get a fly on the wall. Um, I've no idea about the size of our tongue. Uh, one of the things that is amazing is what I'm doing right now, which is speaking with it. Um, and our ability to manipulate and change the shape of it together with our voice box, which then produces this huge range of sounds, has clearly been very, very significant in our in our success because we can encode all sorts of incredibly complicated things. We can use it for mind transfer. I mean, I'm, I'm effectively doing telepathy now through my voice. I've got an idea in my head. I'm making these noises. It's going into the internet, and then it's going into your mind, Ted. Isn't that amazing? So telepathy is real, and it's called speech. Um, but... <laughs> Different animals will have different sized tongues. So uh, fish have tongues. And if you really want to creep yourself out, you might want to look for a, there's a, what's called an isopod, which is a kind of woodlouse, um, or rather woodlice or iPods, isopods. And they live in the sea. It's kind of crustacean. And these parasitize the tongues of uh, fish. And the fish has a, an isopod, instead of its tongue and you'll find these pictures of these poor fish with these isopods in space of their tongue so be careful when you go in the sea no don't be careful don't worry it's not going to happen <laughs> oh, you're not a fish it's going to be okay um so short answer is i think they're just the right size okay I think, uh, can i just say I, i'm on tennis sides on this i think our tongues are too big for our for our mouths I certainly bite the tongue, the side of my mouth, and, and I don't know about this either, but I was wondering if part of it was because I did see something that suggested that our tongue, when we're born, is about the same relative size as a chimp's tongue is to, you know. Um, but, of course, humans really shorten their face compared to other great apes, and I wonder if, you know, part of the same reason that we, you know, our, our wisdom needs don't really fit in our mouths anymore. Um, maybe it's part of the same thing. that It's, it's not that our tongues are too big. It's that our, our faces are too small. Yeah, so this should basically be out kind of more there. Yeah, really. yeah. Then maybe it would. But it is the case that our tongues are enormous, right? This, right, is, a this question is a question for Sophie Scott. Next time we have Sophie yeah, Scott, yeah. we need to ask her because those are MRI scones, which are kind of a slice yeah. through the face, and you watch people, and the tongue goes all the way down the back. It's huge. It is enormous. It is. I mean, it's definitely. This is a bit of a grim thought. It. It definitely. There isn't room for it to come out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's what Ted means, but it is gigantic down there. It is a remarkable. The thing that I hated most as a child was when we had tongue for tea. You remember a cow's tongue, and right. it was uh, well, certainly not now. Brought up in a vegetarian household. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, fortunately, I, that may well be why I moved to vegetarians because there is when you first see that coiled on a plate. It's such a, I think part of it is the dimpling as well. You know, that thing where, it's, again, what puts people off meat is when it becomes a reality of a living thing. And But seeing the size of a cow's tongue, seeing how much of it is unrevealed, as you, you know, that is a remarkable, I, I think, again, another show that the mutation, heredity and natural selection may not have been the but best that's system. really interesting, isn't it? Because cows can't speak. Cows can't speak. And ah, now this he, is uh, that's what you very think. contentious. <laughs> I believe that John C. Lilly, after he lost his dolphin, did move on to. Uh... 
Oh, I've, we've had a snap poll. Trent just, I, 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 we just found out. Let's find out. Uh, live chats. Uh, the live chat people do believe tongues are too big. So there we are. That's okay. uh, it's been, been decided. Now, because That's there's been right. a lot of talk of fish, uh, I'm going to ask Sebastian, age five, question. And I have no idea which one of you will want to answer this first. Uh, and it is Sebastian would like to know how do fish sleep? Now, I don't think this is about a level of guilt that they experience. I don't think he's saying how do fish sleep. I think. <laughs> I think it is what goes on with fish when we're you know that i mean do do they sleep what, what how, how does it it does appear is it right dolphins i know they're mammals obviously but there's i i had read in the past that there's a kind of half sleep where there's the one side goes sleep and then the other side goes to sleep i don't know how accurate that is but but yes the so fish or dolphins because i've asked that now yeah they Who's sleep first i'll do it i'll do it i'll go, go on they all sleep. Yeah, everything sleeps. Bees sleep. Flies sleep. Maggots sleep. You got to sleep. Um, so fish, dolphins. So yeah, I mean, I've got the same level of knowledge as you have. Maybe Angela knows more. Uh, <laughs> that, but yeah, they they're going to drown. So they've got fish are going to drown. Uh, ah, dolphins would drown if they didn't come up to breathe. So they can't sleep for very long under the water. It's obviously the same thing with whales. But you'll have seen those fantastic images of the sperm whales all standing up in the water, a whole pod of them, and apparently dozing off, uh, chilling, and thinking their whaley thoughts. Uh, so th the same thing will go for fish. Now, a lot of people say, for example, that sharks have got to keep on swimming, otherwise they will suffocate, drown effectively, because they get the oxygen through their, through their mouths and then through their gills, and that's, that's essential. So they've got to keep on going. Well, you've only got to go to an aquarium uh, which has got sharks in it, and you'll see sharks sitting on the bottom, quite happy, gulping water, breathing, and apparently dozing off. So sleep, we, we don't understand why you have to sleep. There's all sorts of different theories, but all animals do it. It is absolutely fundamental. So fish are doing it too. They go quiet at night. They don't make as much noise. They don't pootle around as much. And then the dawn comes and off they go again. Brilliant. We've got, we just had a question from, from uh, Brenda. I'll start with you, Angela, on this one, which is uh, she would just like to know, where are we with, with dinosaurs and feathers at the moment? Where have we got to? Oh, yes. Dinosaurs have feathers. Dinosaurs well, have feathers. A lot, well, a lot of dinosaurs had feathers. Um, so certainly T-Rex and things like that, they had feathers. And in fact, we have lots of actual soft body fossils now um, or impressions of, of feathers. And there's even... I believe some amber specimens of dinosaurs with feathers, um, a really small dinosaur. So there's no question that at least a large uh, proportion of dinosaurs had feathers. Now, I think, and I don't know exactly what the most recent consensus on this is, but I think there is a question about whether all dinosaurs ancestrally had feathers and some lost them. Because there are some things. So if you look at like kind of the dinosaur family tree, right, you have theropod dinosaurs like T-Rex and things like that. And those are the ones that give rise to birds. Um, and then so a lot of those very definitely have feathers. We have fossils of them with feathers. So I think we can, we can comfortably say that most of those, if not all of them, have feathers. Um, at least, you know, some may have lost them. Um, now there's some, uh, and then there are sauropods, you know, big things like Dippy. Um, and we, uh, I think there's no evidence that any of those had feathers. Um, but then there's the other side of things, ornithischians, so things like stegosaurs and chylosaurs, and other, um, you know, other things on that side of the dinosaur tree. And there are some fossils on that side of the tree that had 
I don't know if they're full feathers, but proto feathers or some sort of feather like structures. And so that I think makes it a bit muddied in terms of whether maybe ancestrally they all had feathers and then some lost them or whether feathers evolved multiple times across different groups of dinosaurs. But a hundred percent, there are many, many dinosaurs that had feathers. And so birds, flight feathers maybe, but of course I think there are some, you know, dinosaurs that are near the origin of birds that had pretty extensive, elaborate feathers. Um, but certainly uh, feathers were something that evolved within dinosaurs, probably, you know, to keep them warm with that nice high metabolism that they have, like our sort of like the same way that we use fur as mammals. Um, it seems like dinosaurs, a lot of dinosaurs had that. Also, they could have used them for purposes, you know, a lot of the really cool research actually can find some of the color patterns in those feathers, and so they may have been using them for display too. So definitely, you know, when you look at Jurassic Park and they have things like T-Rex or some of those other big theropods running around without feathers, that's wrong. They definitely should be having feathers. You know what makes it scarier personally? About that, 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 what's distressing about that is that, so I, I watched, I think, the first Jurassic Park. By the time the third one came out, they knew that dinosaurs had feathers and they didn't yeah. put it in the film yeah. and that because they thought that non that scaly dinosaurs were more scary or something and that was like how like i'm not you know but how if you're going to make a big blockbuster film give your dinosaurs feathers yeah Absolutely. i mean they, not, that's what apparently spielberg said feathers aren't scary to which i'd reply well he's never seen a cassowary which are yeah. absolutely terrifying but once you see once you realize that those those uh, theropod dinosaurs are basically like plucked chickens and you see them that way. It's like a chicken in the supermarket rather than a chicken running around when you, you, you can't look at them again in the same way. It just looks stupid. It's, you know, you know, it's just occurred to me, though. So I don't know if you've ever held an owl, an owl. Or, been, or been anywhere near an owl, but an owl, they look very wise. They've got yeah. these big heads, right? You can stick your finger a long way into those feathers before you get to actual owl. And it makes yeah. what you just said makes me imagine that a T-Rex was actually like this giant fluff ball. And you had to stick your finger into the fluff a long way before you found actual T-Rex. Well, my guess is those that were living at the higher altitudes, uh, high, higher longitudes, latitudes, whatever it is, they would have been, yeah, because uh, the polar dinosaurs. So those that were mooching around in the, you know, in the polar forests, they wanted to keep warm. And they, one guess, as Angelique said, would have had, you know, fluffed them out and been like, I don't know, great big kind of penguiny things. <laughs> And I'll just add, by the way, we've already had one warning uh, of Helen's things. Don't put blue tack in your ear. Secondly, be really careful when you're sticking your fingers in your owl. OK, it's uh, <laughs> not recommended. Um, <laughs> owls are indeed, the, the, I, I believe, that iridology or iridology, iridology. So that, that, that story begins with a, a wounded owl. But I haven't got time for that now. This question Helen, to you, Helen. Uh, Iggy would like to know, how deep could you dive before the pressure would crush you? Oh, well, this is really interesting because the answer is not very far, but there's a get out, far, but there's a get out clause. Um, so obviously, the so most of us is water and water is as squishy as other water. So so the parts of our body that feel solid are not the problem. If you dive down, the problem you've got is your lungs because they are basically air filled cavities. And if you. Um, they could collapse if you if there was more pressure on the outside than there was on the inside. So the way that scuba divers get around this is very clever. What you do, what you, your regulator, the the thing that comes from your bottle of gas to your mouth, controls the pressure so that 
it it change it continually changes every time you take a breath the pressure of that gas matches the pressure in the water so actually as you go down what's happening is every breath you take there's more gas coming um which can fill up your lungs and push back against the ocean so on scuba on scuba equipment you never act, that that battle is never lost um because the pressure on the inside always matches the pressure on the outside so then the question is how far down can you go just breathing on pressurized gas and the answer the limitation comes uh, when oxygen becomes poisonous which is not something that people think of very much um, but obviously we need oxygen to breathe it's a good thing however if it gets high enough if the concentration of it is high enough in the system it does become poisonous and so if you if every breath you take has all this extra gas that's squished into your lungs, the effective pressure of oxygen in your lungs, the concentration, the number of actual oxygen molecules goes up and up and up. Uh, and eventually it becomes poisonous. And also the nitrogen will dissolve because it will just cross the barrier, the inside of your lungs, cross the lining. Um, and you get nitrogen uh, in your body, which is normally inert, but can it causes something called nitrogen narcosis, which makes you, it's a bit like being drunk, um, which is not recommended when you're at depth. And so recreational scuba diving has a limit of, I think it's 40 meters. Um, so you can dive deeper, but what you have to do is to effectively replace some of that oxygen with helium. So you can keep the pressure up, but not poison yourself on oxygen. Uh, and the tech diving, the, the mixed gas dive limit, I'm not sure. But to be honest, no one really bothers because the ocean, there's not that much difference in what you can see between 50 meters and 200 meters it sort of looks the same so you only bother doing it if there's a wreck or something specific to look at so it doesn't get any prettier so people tend not to spend a lot of time trying but the limitation is not actually the pressure it's the oxygen poisoning if you had that pressure of atmospheric gas in your lungs brilliant so thank you they, very used, much. they used to call not nitrogen narcosis the rapture of the deep <laughs> It's really weird when you're doing when you're doing your dive training. They make you do sums. They say, you know, uh, we're going to give you some algebra problems. You have to write the answer down on your slate, and it's a lot takes a lot longer <laughs> at forty meters, which is actually quite worrying. <laughs> I might not be allowed to. The uh, so um, this is uh, just to mention uh, again. We're nearly at the end. We've got a couple of questions left. Uh, thanks for everyone who's been watching this. Thank you everyone who's supporting us via Patreon. If you are able to support us via Patreon, that is absolutely great uh, because uh, having just now entirely crossed out uh, my diary, save for three events, so the, the whole tour is now gone. All my tour dates are gone. So we are using that fund. Don't worry, it's not it's not for me, but it is. We're using it as a fund for a lot of the kind of artists and performers and um, and people who uh, have, have run out have no way of funding anything uh whatsoever um so if you are able to support us for our patreon that helps us so much with all the shows we're making and if you uh, are not able to do that but you have a little bit and you can pop it in the tip jar today that is fantastic as i said that's been used as a fund for art centers and artists and uh, and we are keeping up with that so thank you very much for any support you can give and i'll give you a quick reminder that josie long is on tonight doing her live stream of her brilliant show um tender uh now the final questions are first of all from rupert angeli would he would like to know what is the cool thing you have ever found at the natural history museum oh so, oh so something that's in the collections of the natural history museum let's see what is the coolest thing well i have a real soft there's a baby thylacine 
Um, which is so the thylacine is the the Tasmanian tiger, the marsupial wolf, right? This is an animal that went extinct in the 1920s, I think. Um, and so there are some specimens in the National History Museum, including um, pouch young or you know babies of those. And so I think that's that's one of those times where you like open a drawer and you're just like, oh my god, I can't believe I get to look at this thing. Um, so I think that definitely has to be number one on my list. Do you have some early on when you're first kind of wandering around and again, maybe in the dry storms where you do look at certain objects and you think this is making me rethink how life can be what it is. How can something of this shape or this form or with these kind of, you know, internal structure, how was this the most advantageous shape and form to be at one particular time of life on earth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like that happens to me kind of every day kind of every day, to be honest, um, because, you know, I feel like the more the more that you know about something, the more you realize that you don't know anything about anything. That's pretty much been my career trajectory. I gain information and I lose knowledge, I think, um, and uh, our understanding because, you know, it just gets so much more complicated constantly. And, you know, I'm a mammal person, so I don't actually I'm not actually terribly fond of dinosaurs. But there are there are many days where I stop and think, how how did dinosaurs even how is that even a thing that existed? It's so crazy when you actually think about, like, at one point, you know, 66 million years ago, there was these insanely gigantic reptiles walking around the land, you know? And, and then you think, you know, just thinking about biomechanically, like, how can you withstand that sort of force? How do they move around effectively? How do they eat enough? You know, all of that, you know, just the, kind of the scale of life and, like, the variation in, in the scale of life um, really blows my mind pretty much every single day. See, that's why his books are getting longer and longer <laughs> the more he has to explain how little we know. So if, the, the less we know on a subject, the longer his book is. It's wonderful. Um, this is, and here's a question. This is from uh, Stephen Greenaway. And uh, hello, Stephen. Uh, he would like to know, I was walking the Mourn Mountains this weekend. I saw flowers growing underwater in a stream. They had small white and yellow petals. They looked incredibly eerie, like bodies in the dead marshes in Lord of the Rings. What's going on? Are there underwater bees? That's a free one for any of you who wish to... Uh, um, I can say a little bit about I can plant. say a little bit about plants underwater, um, which is one of the things that people. So what, we look at life in the ocean the way we look at life on land, and that means we don't always recognise things because we're looking for something else. And there are there aren't many plants that live in the ocean. Seaweed, algae, does well in the ocean. So most of the the things doing photosynthesis in the ocean are seaweed. But seagrass is a genuine plant. You get meadows of it. It's got roots. Seaweed doesn't have roots. It's just got these um, holes where it holds onto rocks. But plants, underwater plants are much more common in rivers. So saltwater seagrass is adapted to that. But you do get underwater actual plants that are the same as plants on land. And I think, I don't know a lot about it. I think some of them do have flowers, but obviously you don't need pollination in the same way because you've got water, which is kind of flowing over the top and might carry things from one to the other. So I don't know much. I do think that a lot of them are clones. So you, they don't need a lot of pollination, but presumably if for sexual reproduction, they do need a bit. But I don't know. Freshwater is, uh, I'm much better at saltwater things. So I think you definitely do get flowers in some very rare saltwater, uh, freshwater species, but I don't know much about them. And maybe Anjali does. Oh, I think, um, so yes, yeah, some of them pollinate just through the water, using the water to disperse. Um, but I think actually most of I had a quick peek and I, I, I put around and I think actually most of them actually, the, the, in many cases, the flowers actually emerge and are pollinated 
you know, subaerially as opposed to in the water, even though, you know, some of them do actually um, pollinate, you know, through water dispersal, I guess. My, my, there are no, sadly, there are no underwater bees. Uh, there are no insects that live in the sea. There are insects, that obviously, that live in freshwater, uh, but uh, no, no insect insect whole life cycle in the sea. Uh, mm -hmm. And my guess is those flowers uh, were simply been they 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 live very very close to the edge of the water, and it's been raining recently, so the stream or whatever was in full spate, and the water level had risen. But there's no reason to have a flower unless you're going to attract something to pollinate it and there's no as far as i know there's no aquatic pollinators there's no isopods or anything like that crustaceans that are going around feeding for the reasons that helen and angelie have said that it's all done by dispersal so it's the equivalent of wind pollination but in the sea or in the in in the in the fresh water so my guess is it had been raining a lot Right, but Stephen, if you do want to continue your research into underwater bees, again, this is very much <laughs> at the front. forefront of a new form of entomology. Uh, this is, we've only got 30 seconds left, but I wonder if anyone's got an answer for Ben. Ben would like to know, why are some ants poisonous or bite or venomous and some aren't? Well, I think most of them, the, the ones that might not be are the ones that are going to be uh, herbivorous, so they don't have to bring down prey. On the other hand, they might want to have a sting uh, to stop you from picking them up. All the ants you're going to see, of course, are female. Uh, the males don't do anything except fly and mate. Uh, and the sting is, in fact, a modified, a modified ovipositor. So that's where they get their sting from. But they can obviously often give you a little bite. Even if they're really interested in picking up seeds and stuff, they'll give you a bit of a nip. Well, it's late in the day, but we finally had our word, eh? and it was ovipositor. There we are. For any of you who had that on your bingo card, you can strike that one out until next <laughs> week. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today. And a reminder again that uh, if you can support us for our Patreon, that's great. If you want to leave something in the tip jar, that is fantastic. It is helping people through this very, very odd time. We will be back next Sunday at uh, 3 p.m. I'm not even sure what subject we're doing, but again, we're going to be, be broadened. Helen, I hope, is going to be back with us as well. Uh, oh, next week, we're going to be doing climate. So, uh, and I will recommend, by the way, Tamsin Edwards, uh, who's very good on, on on the subject of climate change, done some very in interesting work. Her article that was in the Guardian, I think, yesterday is worth looking up. Very so go and look up Tamsin Edwards' uh, article. It's, it's very, it, it, it's brief and it's broken down in a very comprehensible way about our understanding uh, what we, what we need to understand about about climate. So thank you very much to to Matthew, to Angelie, to Helen, uh, and uh, in fact, Tamsin's on next week. I've just been told. So you know, if you've spoiler alert don't you know maybe don't read her article she might be using it again um matthew by the way helped us a great deal with today's episode because when we asked people for their questions for today's live show he just answered them on twitter before we did the show no. so that was very very useful thank you matthew. i didn't know sorry <laughs> no you're not getting marked down for that but it does mean you have to continue doing that for the rest of the week and there's going to be a lot thanks very much everyone uh thank you very much to trent who as usual is uh, producing this i uh, just quickly mentioned the infinite monkey cage that's going out tomorrow morning on BBC Sounds is uh, with Jane Goodall, Kat Hobater and uh, Bill Bailey and was tremendous. It's uh, um, 60 years since Jane Goodall, uh, her first uh, expedition in Togombe and we, we tried to cover as much as we could but it was a really exciting conversation so I hope you enjoy that as well on Infinite Monkey Cage. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook.
Bye for now.